0: Welcome to Backlog Books. My name is Kara. My pronouns are she, her. This is the podcast where I spend a little time talking about what I have been reading lately. Please be prepared for spoilers. Whether you are a 123 books a year reader or a one book a year reader, thank you for joining me. Happy almost Halloween, everyone. I hope you enjoy this very non-spooky rendition of a classic spooky book. Let's get started. Today we are talking about Dracula by Bram Stoker. Here is the summary. Jonathan Harker is sent by his law firm to Castle Dracula to discuss business with Transylvanian noble Count Dracula. His nightmare experience there is just the start of a macabre chain of events. Harker soon finds himself in a race against time to free his wife Mina and other souls who are in thrall to the evil count. Dracula must be destroyed at all costs. Dracula was first published in 1897. My copy has 520 pages, and I read it between August 27th and September 8th in 2020. Our author, Bram Stoker, was born in Ireland in 1847 and died in 1912. He is best known for writing Dracula, but he did write 11 other novels in his lifetime. There is apparently an annual Bram Stoker festival in Dublin, Ireland every year, which is happening over Halloween weekend in 2020. Do you already know what happens in this book? Are you sure? Dracula has so permeated our culture that it's almost impossible not to have absorbed information about it just through cultural osmosis. And of course, the book and character of Dracula were built off of an already existent vampire mythos. I'm not going to even attempt to track down an original vampire story. Let's just say there are many and they are very old. I did find out that a short story published later by Bram Stoker called Dracula's Guest is believed by some to be the original first chapter of this novel. In it, an unnamed Englishman has to take shelter near a tomb during a storm. He is nearly attacked by a monstrous woman from inside the tomb until she is luckily destroyed by a lightning strike. Opinions vary on whether this short story really belongs in the main narrative of Dracula. Either way, it seems the chapter was cut because it was too long, or maybe because it was superfluous. Or maybe it was cut because it was too close to the real history. There are articles floating around about how Bram Stoker pulled from real history to write Dracula. Not just using Vlad the Impaler and Wallachian slash Romanian history, but also using events like a ship that ran aground on the English coast and a few other instances. I came across an article saying that the whole story in Dracula is true, that the characters really existed and did all this fantastic stuff. I'll include one such article in the show notes, just for fun reading. But a word of caution against believing it wholesale, the article is written by Stoker's great-grandnephew, who recently published a Dracula prequel novel. Now, for the book itself, Dracula is an epistolary novel. This means that it takes the form of journals and letters and even newspaper articles gathered together by the characters themselves, telling the story as it happens to them. They are surprisingly verbose and descriptive for people journaling in their free moments between horrifying events. That's actually my biggest complaint about this book. It could be like 70 pages shorter and it would not ruin the story. The book begins with Jonathan Harker, a young lawyer on his way to visit with a Transylvanian nobleman who recently purchased a home in England. Very pedestrian. The nobleman, one Count Dracula, wants an Englishman to come explain England to him, to make sure that he understands what he's getting into with his new property. Harker notices, on his way to the castle, that local Transylvanians do silly things like cross themselves and make signs to ward off the evil eye when they find out where he's going. What a strange, superstitious lot these locals are. I'm sorry, but if a whole pub came out and crossed themselves at me because of where I was going, I would reconsider my destination immediately. When Harker finally reaches Castle Dracula, things get weirder. There are no servants in the castle. The Count himself looks odd and inhuman. He seems never to eat, and he keeps strange hours. Harker is given vague and strange warnings about not wandering around the castle. His safety isn't guaranteed if he wanders. The doors into and out of the castle seem to be locked. Harker quickly realizes that he is trapped and in danger, but he doesn't have the same cultural knowledge the reader does. Well, the modern reader, anyway. I'm sure reading this in 1897 was very exciting. Jonathan Harker has never heard of Dracula. He might not have even heard of vampires beyond what he's heard from the locals in their superstitions. Their quote-unquote superstitions. After wringing information about England out of Harker, the Count traps him in the castle and leaves, heading to England in his nefarious and unknown work there. Harker takes a chance He risks his life to climb out a window and down a cliff in order to escape. He knows he'll die if he's still in the castle after the Count leaves, killed by whatever it is that makes the castle unsafe at night. For Harker, it's better to die trying to escape than to be trapped in certain death. We turn now to England and Mina, Jonathan's fiancée. She hasn't heard from him in weeks, and she's getting worried. She's also worried about her friend Lucy, who has been having strange dreams and sleepwalking. Six weeks from Harker's last letter, Mina finally gets news of him. He's recuperating with some nuns near Transylvania and wants her to join him immediately. She goes, of course. She's still worried about Lucy a little, but she's trusting that Lucy's fiancé will be around to help her. This takes like a hundred pages, during which Lucy receives three marriage proposals from three different men, and we do some excellent mood setting, including conversations about death in graveyards and a ship being docked by a corpse. When Mina is gone to Jonathan, our main narrator becomes Dr. John Seward, who runs the local asylum and whose marriage proposal was recently rejected by Lucy. Seward, however, is the only person available when Lucy mysteriously falls ill. Despite his best efforts, Seward is baffled by Lucy's illness, and he calls on his teacher and friend to help diagnose and treat Lucy, Dr. Abraham Van Helsing. Van Helsing and Seward together do all they can for Lucy, including strange things like putting garlic flowers everywhere and in a last desperate attempt to save her life, they end up giving her four blood transfusions in a week, all from different people. But it's fine! The blood they use from her fiancé and ex suitors is very manly blood and sure to do her a world of good. By the way, blood types were not discovered until the 1900s. Do you know what happens when you get the wrong type of blood in a transfusion? Basically, you die in about two days due to organ failure. Their attempts to save Lucy's life, however well-meant, are futile. Lucy dies of her mysterious illness, which seems to rob her of her blood. While Lucy's suitors, that's Seward, Quincy Morris from Texas, and Arthur, who is her actual fiancé, while these men mourn, Van Helsing is here to ruin their day and tells them that, worse than dying, Lucy has become an undead creature. Children in a local town are being attacked by a strange woman, and Van Helsing proves that it's Lucy, roaming as a creature of the night. It takes them like a week of watching and planning to finish off the creature formerly known as Lucy. Possibly it's my problem as a reader of modern, faster-paced novels, but I wanted to yell every time Van Helsing told them to wait until the next day. And you know what? Those characters didn't like it any more than I did. They finally corner undead Lucy in her tomb and decapitate her and lay her back to rest with a stake in her heart and her mouth full of garlic. Mina and Jonathan return to England shortly after Lucy has died and been uh laid to rest. Let's put it that way. In the time they've been away, they got married in a very small ceremony, and Jonathan has basically repressed the memories from his time in the Count's castle. He gives his journal from those days into Mina's safekeeping and says he hopes he'll never have to know what was in those pages. Poor Jonathan. Like a week later, Van Helsing calls on Mina and tells her what happened to Lucy, and Mina decides it's time to open the journal and read it. From this point, Mina and the others, including her husband, all of Lucy's suitors, and Van Helsing, dedicate time to writing and sharing their discoveries and adventures with each other. It's kind of fun to include the book's genesis in the book itself. Armed with Jonathan's journal and Van Helsing's knowledge of strange, otherworldly creatures, they figure out who the culprit is, who it was that killed Lucy. The hunt begins for Count Dracula himself. The group discovers that the Count brought with him boxes of dirt from his homeland and has been moving the dirt to various locations so that he has a multitude of places to rest. They discover this information, luckily, before the Count has spread the boxes too far, and they make a plan to destroy all of the dirt in one day in order to drive the Count to a place of their choosing for a final confrontation. While they plan, which takes forever, Mina begins to have strange dreams and to wake feeling lethargic. There's a break in one night at Seward's asylum where they're staying. And the men hear something in Mina and Jonathan's bedroom. They know that the Count is there and that he's after Mina, but they still pause for a second outside the door and ask each other, Should I really be busting into a woman's room? It might upset her. You know what else might upset her? Getting eaten by a vampire. They do finally bust in. They drive off the Count, but they're too late for Mina. She's not dead, but she's been changed. She's still human for now, but her soul is condemned. When she dies, she'll become a vampire. This is usually where you'd expect characters to rush into a confrontation. However, this group has Van Helsing, and he gives his trademark advice. Take the time, be careful, think it through. They enact their plan and destroy all of the boxes except for one. However, the Count manages to sneak past them with his final box and escape. The group has to put on their investigation caps again. The Count could be anywhere. He could be lying in wait next door. He could be 10 to 100 miles away, given his ability to transform and fly. Mina, even fighting for control of herself and her soul, is instrumental in leading them in the right direction, using her weird new psychic connection to the Count to spy on him. They find out he's on a ship, and they make plans to cut him off at the port. Despite all their careful planning and consideration, the Count slips past them at the port. But realistically, at this point, he can only be heading for Castle Dracula, for his home ground. Now that they know the destination, we finally get our chase scene. Mina is instrumental again. She takes the information they have and comes up with the Count's most likely escape route. The group splits up. Jonathan, Seward, Quincy, and Arthur chase after the final box of dirt with the Count in it. Van Helsing and Mina head for Castle Dracula, hoping to reach it first and destroy the Count's lair. The final confrontation, the race against the sunset with wolves closing in around them while they rush to destroy Dracula before he regains his power, is very good. Harker is the one to land the final blow, which is a sweet bit of revenge. Dracula is defeated in the end and Mina's soul is saved. From eternal damnation. There's a nice postscript at the end, set several years later, to show you where these characters ended up. There is so much more to this book than I was able to cover here. It's a little too verbose at times, full of endless details. But the times where they wait gives these characters a chance to talk, to know each other, and comfort each other for their losses and their fears. There's horror, there's danger, there's mystery, and there's also a friend reaching out to help you. My final word on Dracula. It's a little long, but it's good. I wasn't expecting that. Uh, It was written in 1897, so I enjoyed it, and I especially enjoyed taking my time and picking out little details like Harker's love of spicy food or how Quincy Morris the Texan keeps wandering off to casually shoot at mysterious shapes following them, which is very American and especially very Texan. One thing that I would like to say here at the end is that Stoker took the history of a real country and used it to write a book which primarily highlights British people and paints them as the only ones who could deal with Dracula. Lots of people conflate Dracula with Vlad Tepes, Vlad the Impaler, taking a real, important historical figure of Romania and turning him into a Hollywood villain. The local people of Transylvania in this book are painted as either absurdly superstitious or working for Dracula. It's a bad precedent and stereotypes and just something to keep in mind if you read this one. If you want more media like this, you are in endless amounts of luck. Obviously, there are so many vampire books. I personally liked the Netflix Castlevania show, though it is very dark and lots of blood. And I'm going to recommend another Robin McKinley book, Sunshine. For a more humorous take on vampires, I recommend reading Carpe Jugulum by Terry Pratchett. And a special shout-out here at the end of the episode to my friend Tim for answering all of my very confused questions about blood transfusions. And that's a wrap. Join me next time to hear about cyberspace. You can find the pod on Facebook at Backlog Books Podcast comments, questions, what's your favorite vampire novel, you can email me at backlogbookspod at gmail.com. The music is by Joseph McDade, and you can always hear more at josephmcdade.com. Thank you for spending this time with me. I hope to talk with you again soon.